At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast of all things weird, eerie and hauntological. I'm Lucy and as ever I'm joined by Sean. Hello. And this episode also marks a reunion of sorts because joining us as well is artist, musician and taxidermist Chris Richford. Greetings. Chris Richford was our long-term collaborator on Project Protolimina and Mm. is an artist based in Norwich where we all met. And... um, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's the thing. Uh, Chris is a subject of a countercultural underground renaissance man. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I believe I believe you were introduced to me as uh, as primarily as a visual artist by Lucy, because when you were doing experiments with uh, print work and all that, uh, but you just got. More or less everything going on you could have going on at the moment, really. You're in how many different bands? Uh, two properly active bands and um, some projects that kind of come and go. Uh, the uh, bands are? Uh, Sawyer's Rats and uh, Patient. Sawyer's Rats is kind of noise, punk, rock, post, whatever you like. And <laughs> Patient is pretty straight up black metal. Norwichian black Norwichian metal. Yeah. True. True Norwichian black metal. True Norwichian black metal. Uh, we all popped into Crypt of the Wizard uh, today uh, to have a look around there after lunch, and uh, none of us bought anything. So. <sighs> Couldn't find any Voivod, so <laughs> <better> <laughs> like next time. It's also very on brand. But um, kind of on a similar note, this is a special episode for two reasons. Well, three reasons, uh, because Chris is obviously joining us. Um, so the other reason is the fact that we're making a return to um, a subject we covered long ago, um, back on episode three of this podcast, which I suppose was, yeah, just about a year ago. No, actually, no, a bit, a bit less than a year ago. It was Feb- February? I think it was March. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so that is the subject of body horror and bioterror, uh, which I'll be kind of articulating a little bit further on into the podcast. And the other reason uh, this is a special episode is because we are recording in the week when it was announced that not only is Richard Stanley's adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Colour Out of Space finally having been greenlit, it will also now star Nicolas Cage. Uh, This just goes to confirm everything that we said in the Nosferatu episode. Nicolas Cage is a shaman, an occultist. He is someone that has seen... The scene, the the depths, the blackness, the abyss that lies in the heart of things. And he is dragging us all down there with him. Saturn is very much rising. Yes, it is. Let's drink to that. Indeed. Speaking of... (laughs) Speaking of drinking, we are all drinking uh, bourbon, and uh, Chris and I are smoking cigars today because we are doing uh, the film we're taking, we're looking at uh, today is very mask for mask, you might say. It's very blokey and masculine. Hell yeah! Uh, so we are for I think largely just because I was paid yesterday. I decided I know I'm going to get uh, for myself and Chris cigars, despite the fact that I'm not a smoker. So this is a bit of a strange, novel, not unpleasant experience uh, for me, and I hope Chris is enjoying it as well. Superb. But um, as well as you know, as well as wanting to do this, wanting to do an episode with Chris for absolutely ages now, uh, this is also quite a quite a quite a good episode to bring Chris into because um, the whole the whole realm of body horror and bioterror and it's kind of and it's uh, theoretical, artistic, and dare I say, philosophical um, vistas of exploration, the many questions that can be considered there, uh, is quite pertinent to the work that you've been doing, um, because you are 
you have a degree in biology and, and this has had a kind of lasting impression on your art but it's also what but it's also kind of com your art has kind of combined a lot of uh, more abstracted stuff with the biological stuff yeah yeah i think i've always had uh, something in the core of my soul that finds biology just innately terrifying <laughs> and i think the film certainly taps into a lot of that and yeah i try to get to some of that with my artwork yeah and also a lot a heavy element of the occult as well indeed because i mean that was what praetor liminar was about that was kind of our trying to thrash together like find some sort of strange common ground between like demonology and biology and the whole kind of uh, really the epistemology of that because we were looking at how different ideas emerged over time we can do we'll do like a proper like i, I think maybe as one of our bonus episodes at some point we can do a praetor liminar call back just to kind of think about I don't know. What we were doing with that and what we might still do about it at a later point. And yes, we did say bonus episodes because we <laughs> might be setting up a Patreon soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we're talking about the thing tonight. Yes. Shot. Roll up. Carpenter's The Thing deals with the encounter between a group of engineers and scientists at a remote research station in Antarctica with a protean extraterrestrial entity. Arriving at the base in the form of a dog being inexplicably chased by a group of Norwegians, the survivors of the last base it attacked, the shape-shifting creature infects and assimilates its victims into itself, being able to take the form of any of the millions of life forms it has previously consumed. Now aware that the creature could be masquerading as any one of them, the men descend into paranoid infighting as they are one by one picked off until only two remain, facing each other down as the Antarctic winter closes in around them. You the only one who made it? Not the only one. Did you kill it? Where were you, Charles? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. <laughs> Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. And so, The Thing, uh, John Carpenter's film released in 1981, uh, is uh, part of what's generally referred to as his Apocalypse Trilogy. Uh, that is um, consisting of The Thing, uh, The Pr Prince of Darkness, and, um, and In the Mouth of Madness. Um, which both of which we'll also be covering at some point in some in, in yeah. some form uh, in some way form or another yes yes and the whole idea the kind of even though they, they have very different settings and very different themes and different kind of elements of stuff like uh, Prince of Darkness is more concerned with the supernatural and uh, Mouth of Madness is really kind of more concerned with the hypostitial um, or hypostitional um, what kind of unites them is an, an overbut or an overbearing um, just, just really, they are they are John Carpenter's um, overture to H.P. Lovecraft because they all, in one way or another, explore the kind of 
not just the weird, but the kind of central, um, the central tenet of, um, of, of Lovecraft's writing, which is the idea of cosmic horror. Yes, with the thing, it, the, you could almost, to a certain extent, you can almost uh, place them at very different points in uh, Lovecraft's career. Like, uh, Prince of Darkness feels much more like an early Lovecraft work. You could see um, it has uh, arguably certain sort of like resonances with some of his more questionable work, like horror at, at uh, Red Hook, in the way with the um, just with the you know the the abandoned church and the things that lie beneath. Yeah, um, the thing being of, it's not. I mean, the story isn't related to At the Mountains of Madness, but the setting just can't help but evoke that. And there is something very much like uh, the Shoggoth uh, to the thing. But it is yeah. this, uh, like I said, it's a protean entity. It's, it doesn't have a fixed shape. It doesn't have fixed boundaries, yeah. almost. And in, in, in terms of just kind of linking these three films together, like if, um, if, if Prince of Darkness is early Lovecraft, the thing is late Lovecraft. It's more kind of cool. It's more akin to something like Call of Cthulhu. Yes. And yes. the biological elements in, inherent in that. I would almost like go as far to say like in the mouth of Mantis is almost like a posthumous Lovecraft. I mean, it's kind of, it's so, so Lovecraftian, but it seems to be based in what emerged, well, what Lovecraft created of himself. Or yes. What, what Lovecraft's work created and then went on to create, but is still couched in what Lovecraft did during his life. Um, and I think that's something we need. I'm going to need to think a lot more about uh, when we eventually come to cover it. In a way, it's about Lovecraft himself almost, and the and the 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 image and the ideas we have about Lovecraft, the man, more than uh, any of his works in particular. Yeah, and also it's kind of. Um, I think one thing that I do want to kind of uh, bring in at this stage in the podcast as well is the fact that we're using the words cosmic horror and the weird more or less interchangeably. Uh, but it's worth noting um, that kind of they, they do sort of refer to different things while referring to the same thing. Um, and that's actually something that, um, you know, right back at the beginning of the podcast when we talked about um, how Mark Fisher defined the weird. Uh, his focus on the weird was very much as one uh, concerned with... The weird was almost like really a form rather than a genre. It referred to like the... it referred to the style in which the narrative of these things unfolds, um, the pervading air of doom and the kind of the ambiguity of horror that is that is present there. Whereas cosmic horror is kind of it's it's more of a it's more of its own thing. It's more of a specific thing. Uh, and it deals with um, it really focuses on the the existential questions that Lovecraft's work poses uh, that then I think kind of. I think that if I had to kind of like pin down a relation, a point of relationship between the two, I'd say that kind of like the weird is the awareness of the existential horror that, um, that the, that, um, yeah, the, the weird is the awareness of the existential mm. horror, um, it's that is present. It, yeah, it's a symptom. It's kind of how it manifests itself. Um, and so I would actually say that these um, these three films are linked more by cosmic horror than by the weird in a particular sense, although they're, uh, I think it, it varies between the three of them. Um, but um, but yeah, so that idea of cosmic horror is something we really want to go into quite a bit of depth on um, in on this episode. But I think um, but I think kind of I think one of the core things which uh, comes back to that linking territory of um, the the ambiguity, the sense of uncertainty, is something um, something actually that comes up in uh, a, a book series that we read that we've read, kind of that has contributed uh, a lot to this series, which is Eugene Thacker's um, trilogy 
uh, the philosophy of horror with such evocative titles or the horror, the, well, nah, the, the, nah. the horror of philosophy. I, I always enforce that bit and then I just get it wrong myself <laughs> like while, while on record. Uh, but they, they have the wonderful titles of In the Dust of This Planet, uh, what is it, Speculative... Starry, Starry Speculative, Speculative Corpse mm. and, and Tentacles Longer Than Night. Than yes, Jesus. and they are all wonderful. Seriously um, But it's kind of... I think it's in one of the second or third chapters of the first book that um, he talks about... Um, he talks specifically about the Lovecraftian legacy in film um, and brings up the thing when he's talking about um, the, the very idea of the weird rather than cosmic horror the relationship, is the fact that um, the ambiguity is in the thing right down from the very, fir- from the very instant because it is in itself um, referring to something that can't be explained by giving it the name The Thing, which could be anything. Um, and that, you know, he makes comparisons with other things like um, Them is another film um, about a, mm. on a similar note of kind of uh, ambiguous Lovecraftian horror, but also, I suppose, like, if we're thinking about uh, John Carpenter, They Live has got that similarly evocative ambiguity about it. Yes, it's almost... Um, if we go back to um, what I'm going to call Fisherite terminology today, um, when we look at the distinction he draws between weirdness and eeriness, we'll remember that um, the eerie pertains to failures of presence and absence, while the weird refers to overabundance of presence. So what we kind of have with a name like The Thing is a... It calls to mind um, overabundant presence in t- just as such, though. In fact, in fact, like you said, it is very unspecific. It doesn't really refer to any... It doesn't refer to anything in particular. It, and, and this is something that is further reinforced in the film itself by the fact that... Um, we never that the thing only ever presents as the other things it's already encountered in the past. We never see the tr- its true face uh, in any way. Well, these, these, are, these are all questions that we want to move on to. But the other thing that I kind of raised earlier was the idea of... Um, in, in, the, in the Shivers episode, I talked a lot about body horror and that idea having a certain root in, um, in kind of Freudian ideas of the uncanny because it's a, a disruption of the natural order. Whereas um, I use the term biohorror uh, to refer to this one simply because... Um, Body horror is a thing happening to an individual, and it's uh, it's a very much it's a, it's kind of ultimately a subjective thing. It's ultimately a, a, a phenomena in human understood in human terms, or rather the disruption of uh, understanding in human terms. Whereas biohorror, well, this is this is biohorror because even though it's taking the shape of humans, and it's and we're seeing we're, we're getting that sense of the uncanny that comes from the disrupt, you know, seeing um, human or nominally human things going wrong, doing things that are unnatural, uh, that triggers a very primordial un- un- discomfort. Um, with biohorror, it's, it's happening to another entity. This is just another, um, another, another entity that is itself revealing, um, revealing itself as being... I don't know, I think I define mm. body, uh, biohorror as just this sense of, um, just the sense of uncontrollable nature. 
um, that it's something just amorphous and um, terrifying because it's like it's things we understand as being natural, but happening in such a at such a fast pace. I think maybe maybe the first example I really identified with this concept is um, the ending of the film Akira, where Tetsuo like just has that goes from um, just being super powerful to having this just literally exploding and spouting off into just impossible kind of tumour-like growths um, of just this non-autonomous, uncontrollable biological matter spewing forth. Yeah, um, I think if I was going to jut in at this point yeah. to say, to talk a little bit about that distinction between what you're calling biohorror and body horror, um, Akira, I think, draws those two things together almost perfectly with the, the sci-fi aspects of biological um evolution and bioweapons and and the the internal subjective horror of your own body um transgressing against you um the thing is the 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 body horror in the thing the movie itself is a bit more implied um it can be sort of it's there but it's uh mostly to do with the paranoia of this thing happening around you to other people and the and the paranoia of the individuals um as they are kind of afraid of everyone else turning into something other than human because what we tend to see in the thing is rather is um, rather than that of the of you of seeing like the Cronenberg thing of seeing one's own body turned against you uh it is rather seeing a human form uh someone else's human form being weaponized and transformed and kind of like just reduced to its raw biomass and converted into something else for um in order to serve the thing's uh, purposes and its goals. Absolutely, I think weaponized is a good a good term because it just breaks down what you regard as a as a human being as a something with a, a self and a and a, a a soul looking out and turns it into just raw materials for um, attacking. Because <laughs> what we because like some of the stuff we see and this uh, and the special makeup effects were the work of a guy called Robert. Uh, Botin, I think his name was um, the special makeups guy uh, on the thing, and because like the kind of stuff he actually has, like the people who have been thingified, uh, do they are? It's not just um, they're doing ordinary human body things, but more. It's like very, very subtle. Well, not subtle. It's not a subtle film, um, <laughs> but like very particular things, like heads splitting open with a vertical seam, not like yeah. Um, not like as you'd imagine, perhaps like the mouth opening wider, wider, and wider. Rather, that the skull itself just just completely subverting the normal uh, lines of that that a body should assume. Yeah, it's yes. not like the jaw itself becomes bigger; it just chooses an entirely new jaw. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but I think kind of where this where this crosses over into cosmic horror territory is because it's like um, it's like. Even though, even though these are like, you know, we're seeing this as an alien entity and it's something unfamiliar that's being brought kind of against us. Um, what it stands as a reminder of, it, well, it, it stands as a reminder that like, no, biology is terrifying in and of itself. Biology is a great and vast thing. And even if what we're seeing is incomprehensible to us, it's not supernatural. This is something that... Um, this is something that biology is capable of. Bio you know, biology is a great uncontrollable, great unknown, just as much as any kind of form of speculative astrophysics is at a certain, you know, at a certain level. I, I know a um, certain number of caveats uh, necessary for that. But it's showing the most extreme example or logical conclusion of um, things that are kind of 
held as potential in things around us. Um, it's like, yeah, it's, and it's, I think you were saying when we were talking about this, it's like the, it's bringing, it's kind of transgressing the, the, um, the inside and the outside. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, what was it? Lovecraft is the, the, the universe as essentially uncontrollable, eternal, unknowable, and body horror is taking all of that and looking inside into the, the inner universe, mm. um, which in as much as we know about science, biology, genetics, um, there's, there's a, there's a limit to what we know and understand. And there's always, uh, yeah, and, uncontrollable things. <laughs> and the fundamental panic, but I guess what brings it home to the Freudian uncanny or, you know, the, or the weird as understood as a kind of, um, a human experience is the sudden realization that like there's this terrifying process and you're part of it. And I guess the, the real experience of the uncanny is, is seeing, seeing yourself in this entity. You gotta be fucking kidding. But, well, I've talked about the kind of this, this entity quite a lot, but uh, one of the main questions I wanted to ask was kind of, what is the thing? Because um, <laughs> at that, on that note, I'm going to grab more whiskey. Cool. I've cracked the egg to now. Yeah. <laughs> now let's drink the albumin. Yeah. <laughs> Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that Maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. My blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive crawl away from a hot needle say so so yeah so i mean what do we make of the thing because there's there's a certain ambiguity to that um because it you know it's it's an alien entity but all biological entities however alien have have well just because kind of Darwinism, I guess, as we think of it, is, is almost like a golden rule in that survival of the fittest will result in a certain type of behaviour that is suited to an environment. And where there, whenever there are kind of like non-random factors, um, it's possible, you know, this is, I guess, this is something we went back to with, with Proto-Limino when we were talking about this in the context of demonology or how demons might manifest. But like, even if it's, um, even if it's come from another planet, we, pro we have certain like tools to understand, to approach like what's its fundamental nature. But so like key question, like biology question now I think <laughs> is like how, you know, how is it behaving? Would, would you, you know, would it's, you call it a virus? Or... It's really difficult to pin down. And it's uh, when I was rewatching it the other night, I was just trying to sort of, you know, there, there, it's obviously an alien entity, which sort of defies those traditional um, uh, virus is it a virus is it a parasite is it um uh something entirely separate i think it's similar to a virus in that it seems to act um its only real drive is self-preservation and all of its behavioral aspects come from the things that it assimilates um you don't ever see the thing in its primal form, as you said, Sean, there's like, it, it's always mimicking something. And there's nothing that specifically uh, 
outlines this in the film, but I would assume that it's like it just mimics the minds of the things that it um, assimilates. So when it's a dog, it is a dog, and when it's a human, it, it is a human. And there, there's those points when it transitions, and all of a sudden you get it erupting out of somebody. They are sort of their conscious mind seems to leave, and then it's just like raw flesh. <laughs> yeah. So. I thought like because one of the things I, I thought of when I saw it was like it's almost like um, I think it was you showed me like slime molds that mm. another another great mystery that's really, really? quite you know, garden variety slime mold because that's something that is like that's an organism but is many organisms yeah so uh, yeah if you think about the the kinds of organisms that we do know about which act as a colony rather than as an as an individual i mean you can obviously look at like insect colonies but then they are composed of uh, semi-conscious individuals um when you then get down to uh things like polyps uh these creatures called siphonophores which fascinated me for a long time um they form large organisms from small individuals. The individuals are completely not viable to survive on their own. And the larger creature is the result of these uh, things acting together. Um, but they still, they have a, a certain amount of aut on autonomy on their own. They will survive for like a few minutes or hours, depending on the sort of the environmental conditions but then if you go one step further than that you get slime molds which is something that we just don't understand <laughs> and it's just uh, yeah so one thing that uh, occurs to me as a as a possible sort of um, metaphor image that we could use to try and understand uh, the thing is uh, if we draw attention to the fact that it assumes characteristics from the stuff it encounters it's in some ways uh, acts like a crystal and it's often been noted that the way that crystals spread has certain similarities with viral forms mm. and, w and with other biological forms. And so there is this. And so what I think is so fascinating about this film is that it does um, <clears throat> point us towards these questions, the, these philosophical questions to do with, um, among other things, to do with our identity and to do with uh, where we do start to ask Maybe the example of the um, what was the life form you mentioned? Uh, Siphonophores. Siphonophores. Yeah. Like the question of yeah, where's its mind? <laughs> where's its mind? But also, so like, where at um, at what scale are we discussing it? Almost, and this could kind of, and this almost sort of leads us to uh, wonder about um, how that applies to uh, sort of like to human beings, so to humans, to um, is there some level whereby we could sensibly think of societies as being organisms of which Absolutely. we are components but at the same time this is problematized by the fact that it'd be very difficult but we can survive on our own if we completely extract ourselves from a social context provided that we still have can provide ourselves with shelter and nutrition and so on we can survive uh, however long um this is so this is um and this kind of problem to do with a continuity of identity is quite is is a, one of the like persistent questions of um philosophy it's, it's um i forget the name of the analogy but there's um there's there's the, a story of an ancient greek ship where over a period of time every single piece of wood that composes it is replaced with another piece of, of wood course. which breaks the question is it still the same ship as it was before? Then, At what yeah. point does that movement over to it being a different thing actually take yes. place? I mean, and that's the well. The same is true of the human body. Throughout your life, every cell will be replaced by a new cell. Nothing remains of what you were when you were born. Um, and if you if you think about that 
there's a continuity of experience um, throughout your life. But then how does that apply to this alien entity? If it's taking over your cells, uh, is it... Because it's never really explained whether it devours the cell, kills it, and then mimics it, or whether it just kind of forces its way in like a virus sort of injecting its DNA, in which case it would just use what's there of the cell. So there's nothing really different between that and, yeah, in yeah. a viral infection. It's like, this This is the question that is posed in, um, in two other notable works of body horror or kind of bioterror horror, that crossover there. Um, the two two I'm thinking of, well, one is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the various adaptations there, but in particular the 1978 brilliant version with, with Donald Sutherland. One of the finest films ever made. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, that has that wonderful scene, I think it's the Leonard Nimoy psychiatrist character, who's giving that wonderful talk about how he's persuading people to just submit themselves to being taken over by the pods, um, because he says, no, all your thoughts will be transferred into it. You'll continue living you're just awakened into a more perfect world, I think is the line. Um, but, but yeah, that, that you know, that, yeah. And there's that... a definite nod to body snatchers in, uh, I forget the name of the character, but one of the uh, researchers, when he runs outside and he, he does the scream, like, yes, <laughs> and like, he's, yeah. he's not pointing, but it's definitely like the scream. That's one, that's a really fascinating moment because when they catch the thing kind of mid, mid assimilation of someone, they comment that, it could once if it had been left with its own devices, it would have been completely um, indistinguishable from the guy who it, um, it, it attacked. Yeah. But you do it, they catch it halfway, and it, and when it just makes this alien screaming noise, it's kind of like it's almost as if um, it's not quite, it's not got the voice. Almost, it's like I've not figured out how to work mm. this puppet yet and it's confused and afraid you know mm. it's like uh yeah it's so threatening because it's horrific but it's uh, they've caught it in a moment of vulnerability mid-transition like, <laughs> uh, there's there's a callback um there's a callback to that i think i think it's a definite callback to that in uh the um jeff vandermeer novel slash uh adaptation the film annihilation uh have you seen that chris uh, yes, yes, yeah. brilliant, like, amazing film. Yeah, one of, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. One of the that. most amazing bits is like someone is killed by the great kind of strange biological terror that's taking over this area. Uh, sort of strange energy transference, biological terror, transmuting thing. Um, but um, she ends up fused with a bear creature, but the bear has her voice uh, because yeah. it's assimilated oh just that God. one bit, and it's assimilated some element of like some element of the person, but. The element that it's assumed is their final, last, terrifying experience of suffering. Absolutely. So it's their death scream is just repeated <laughs> by a fucking bear meat puppet for eternity, mm. and that's 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 fucking hellish. That's like Dante esque. Um, My word, yeah. We should you should do that film at some. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. it crosses over so many um, things that we'll we'll talk about today. I'm sure, yeah. but like. And and also yeah and and the other the other kind of body horror film I was thinking of uh, kind of coming out around the same era uh, going back to Cronenberg again is The Fly um, starring Jeff Goldblum the wonderful wonderful Jeff Goldblum who I think this is the first mention of them on this show but you know, <laughs> almost certainly not the last um, but um, but that the film The Fly I th- am I right in thinking um, well because the, the, it it kind of brings up. Um, I think it's existed as a, um, a philosophical question in kind of AI and, um, and computer inf- interface problems um, over a couple of decades, which is uh, the teleporter problem. 
in that if you tele if you go into a teleporter and it breaks down all your cells in one location, transfers the data, the the, the acquired data of those cells into a into like an energy thing that is then translated, like effectively three D printed Excellent. into another location. Have you just died? Like have you, have you just been killed and replaced with a perfect double and does your kind of life continuity end? Mm. And so the and then you remanifest as an entity that never is never sure whether it was ever alive at all. Or, as know. a conscious exact copy of the original, do you perceive yourself to be the original your continuity of memory is there does the thing copy across your conscious self and then like because that's the most horrific part of it when i really start to think about this film is like um and as as the film progresses and the thing kind of it's implied that the thing is getting better at mimicking humans uh the last transformation um when they're all tied to the sofa uh, there is a very brief shot of the character's face who's about to transform and he gives a very human expression of guilt and he sort of looks down and he's like, oh, it's my blood next and then transforms and it's like, is that just, is it just mimicking his facial expression or is he actually there right to the very last minute? Because yeah. this is the thing that um, every time I've watched it, I've really tried to think about because they, because what they establish is that, um, <clears throat> Excuse me, is that every kind of like individual component of the thing they say is kind of like its own entity. This is what we've touched on what we've already said. And that um, what this, so that's why they're doing the blood test, because if they remove a little bit of it and then attack it, it responds. Uh, and it responds independent of the, um, of the rest of the host or whatever, or the rest of the, um, of the, of the uh, creature has been taken from. And so this got me like, really thinking about at what level is the thing conscious, and maybe it isn't conscious. Because one of the things that, I need, that you see in the, that, that, that they discussed among themselves, actually, the, the, uh, the cast, was if you have become uh, infested with the thing, are you aware of this on some level? At what point... Do you know? Because like in some cases, like where it does just like lurch out and blah. Yeah. Then sort of like, you kind of like, oh dear. Yeah. Um, but they also state um, that it would take just consuming a tiny fragment of it to be corrupted by it and to be transformed into it. And mm. the character, I forget his name, because they don't, they don't really focus on the characters very much, but the, the, the dude whose chest opens up and eats the other guy. Yeah, uh, well, he, there's, a, there's an obvious moment of him passing out and, and possibly dying, and then he sort of, like, becomes a zombie. Yeah, because like. it's interesting as well that the, the actor who played that guy, because they all say, when they, like, relieve the guy in charge and take his gun, they offer it to him because they say, everybody trusts you, and he turns it down. And the actor said that his, like, motivation for that, for that scene was thinking that I think he knows on some level that he's been it's got him even if he doesn't quite right oh. and he's kind of got a struggle with it almost so that um, so and is it possible that the thing almost like when you say that it mimics their consciousness does it do that as part of its camouflage does it um, allow a certain surface level of thought to continue which it always has the option of overriding mm. if it needs to defend itself mm. um or is the thing itself just can it just assume all of your thoughts and memories and personality uh completely and, and in the same way it could assume your face yeah i mean this is yeah. I, I remember because when we were when we were thinking trying to kind of like pin this thing down when we were thinking about this episode one of the one of the things i came came up like i, I wrote down um when when i was thinking about the teleporter problem is that the, the teleporter problem 
depicts an incredibly neat, clean cut um, where there's one moment where it's one thing and then one moment it's the other thing. And then I realise, like, it never feels that clean in Young mm. Carpenter's The Thing. It always feels like something something gloopy, something <laughs> un- 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 unpleasant. Um, but, yeah, it's... it's 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 very it's it's very very much it's it's an overabundance of much yeah an over well just an overabundance of like horrific different potentials you can consider Absolutely. in light of this thing. Um, I, just a quick point, you know the, the thing you were saying about like the um, this is this is a classic weird signal aside, but um, there was that thing you mentioned about the boat changing. Um, and it's like whether it's the same boat, same as you could say, like whether it's the same band if they've been going since like 1971, but none of the original kind of <laughs> members are there. Um, but like, I think I think the ship thing is is predated by I I forget the philosopher's name. I think it began with an H, but I'm, I'm oh, you mean Heraclitus? I'm, I'm I'm wanting to say Heraclitus, but I'm not sure that whole because uh, he he summed it up with the idiom of like, do you ever jump in the same river that twice. That is Heraclitus, yes. Right. Uh, shall, I, shall I explain? Hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, that was kind of just prescribing philosophy attempting to deal with time. It's that idea of atomism. Uh, mm. you, you, you're complete, of... you're complete. Um, oh, well. I, I wrote my undergraduate dissertation about this and now I feel the fa- I have to explain. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I have, um, well, I'll go into too many details about it, but, so, but a dominant theme in pre-Socratic um, philosophy was to try and ask big cosmological questions, the sort of like they, in many ways, they more resemble speculative physicists than what we think of as a philosopher now. And they were asking questions about if you could reduce things back all the way down to their primary substance, would you eventually reach a point where you can't divide it anymore? And what would that thing be? And Heraclitus was also asking really interesting questions about is there a principle that orders how things emerge in the universe, which he called Logos, and he and in the, uh, the idiom you mentioned, can you ever you cannot step into the same river twice? It's because he believed that, um, and this is contra another philosopher called Parmenides who didn't believe there was ever such a thing as change. Not really. He thought that things were essentially static, where we just misperceived them as being in motion. Heraclitus believed that the this is why he described at points the fundamental substance as fire, uh, because he believed that no, the thing that actually defines what existence is and what co- uh, existing things are is that they are constantly in flux they are in motion they are changing and so for him the logos the print the ordering principle of reality is flux mm. um i forget what your mm. what your point was i mean this this goes back to um a number of different questions though um because we talk about this idea of flux and flow and the, and the inherent terror involved in that because you know, it's, it's a terrifying chaotic thing um, but if we're thinking about this in terms of um, Darwinian biology and the idea of natural selection, there is there is a sense of chaos um, because you know uh, genes can mutate, genes can change, things biological components can change. Um, but it's not a random process. Um, this is something I learned from Richard Dawkins before I knew, uh, because he was, <laughs> you know because his books about the subject are very very good at actually you know articulating a more nuanced understanding of uh, the fundamental. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, unfortunately, are. yes. Um, He's a zoologist, not a biologist or a genetic theorist. He just needs to get off the fucking internet <laughs> and television and radio. Um, <laughs> but um, shit, sure, where was I going with this? But yeah, the, the point he made was that it's like. It's chaotic, it's random change defined by non-random factors. 
Um, so if we're thinking about if we're thinking about Heraclitus river in this context, the random change is this constant input of water of different water molecules. But um, the the non-random factors is the banks of the river. They're taking the shape the same form as um, the river has done for many years. And you know there's you know there's all the kind of sediment buildup and erosion that happens with that. But that's a much slower process. It's still it's still a recognizable river from one point of time to another. Um, because the non-random factors of this, um, these banks, this, these ge geological formations, and the fact that water, due to gravity, will always follow the easiest path, it's something predictable. But mm. I, I bring this up simply because it's interesting when we think about just going back to kind of the biology of the thing, um, which I guess like crosses over into the ontology of the thing that with that seems to you know seems to be a constant state of crossover. Um, but mm. like the thing, it's it does, yeah, as you, as you say, it does learn, it does adapt, even if it is like kind of random, random changes and has, has this kind of inherent driving force. Its driving force is just one simple function and then all the kind of nuances that it acquires build up from that. So, so this is now where we get to um, the thing as almost a metaphor for life itself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if that drive exists in all of us as it does like yeah what to what i think that's where it loops almost back round to straight body horror um because we've been in, in the movie they've been invaded by a completely alien un incomprehensible thing and yet it, it it follows the basic rules that we all understand fight or flight and survive um but it's subverting our flesh to do that mm. um and there was, yeah, there's there was just another scene from the film that jumped out with me where the, the, the paranoia is at its height and um, Mac is like recording um, a tape for anyone that is going to find the base afterwards. And um, what does he, he says, uh, nobody trusts anybody now and then immediately rewinds the tape and plays it back to himself. Oh, and and the first time I watched it, it like it completely goes past you. Mm. But then I was like, oh no, that's it! Like him testing his own voice, uh, just uh, because he doesn't even trust that he's not been infected at that oh, point. I'd always wondered about that scene. That's a really good take on it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, that that was also the th that what I was thinking of there is like, yes, it's a kind of well. The, the, one of the most striking things, which I don't even forgot was in it when I like when I last watched it and I saw it again, I was like, oh god, what a weird thing, was the fact that it builds a spaceship. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, a raggedy little saucer in the yeah. in the cave. And yeah, this is kind of this is this is something that struck me for two reasons. One is that until that, like I think I'd seen the spaceship before, but assumed that. No, there is a planet of the things <laughs> existing as things. Cronenberg they're, world, Marley. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, in Cronenberg world, they've actually formed a civilization and achieved space travel. So but this, but... this this links into uh, my head canon on what actually is going on here because I've I've not seen the prequel and I have no intention of seeing the prequel. So in I my head, I right, there are mate. some interesting kind of innovations. Um... Our friend uh, Thogden sort of made me watch a, uh, a a scene from it, which was kind. I'm sorry, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, Thog. No, the meld scene is not very interesting still because the CG ruins it. Anyway, I'm not... Oh, it's 2011. You know, people didn't realise CG was going to age that badly. Even <laughs> they had multiple examples of it happening. Uh, my you, Thog, come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> my take on, what was, um, on, on what's actually happened here, especially because the spaceship has crashed... 
the original spaceship that's that brought it to the to the Earth has crashed. Although, like they say that, uh, like I think it's Blair that says this that um, now it wants to eat all of us. It wants to consume us, as if like that's why it piloted the ship here. I almost feel that um, it's closer to Ridley Scott's Alien. Yes. In that I don't think the thing built the spaceship. I think the thing. The same thing that happened to the Goodness. the poor the poor blokes at Thule uh, Antarctic Research Base. It happened to the aliens on the spaceship that they got mm. caught by this thing. Yeah, um, it's a stowaway on another alien's vessel, mm. or at least it assimilated that alien and flew its ship across. Because they kind of take it out. There's a wonderful bit where the stoner character just, uh, like, very, very matter-of-fact, like, says, chariots of the gods, man, they practically own South America. So in this unit, yeah, of course, there's, there's, there's uh, aliens ten a penny uh, uh, flying about. So maybe, and that actually presents an interesting question, because, like, it's implied that the alien, that the thing can as part of its mimicking as part of its camouflage it can assume uh, technological knowledge it gets that from its hosts maybe the spaceship is building is just something that is something that's assimilated previously and again i just kind of like sorry this kind of links back to the overriding concern that i have is the question of is the thing even conscious in a yeah. meaningful sense i almost think that maybe there isn't a primary form that the thing has on its own maybe it's almost more like some kind of bizarre awful cataclysm that can fall by that at some point in history befell a biology and then just kept on spreading. And that's... Like any form of evolution or, ev yeah. uh, you know, any kind of parasite or virus that evolves inside another host. Um... There's, yeah, there's a famous thought experiment, which I think, unfortunately, um, John Searle developed, who is a proper rotter, um, but he, uh, a very influential uh, philosopher of mind. He developed the thought experiment of the Chinese room, which he supposes, like, uh, back in feudal China, supposed that uh, a couple of uh, people out for a walk discover this sort of, like, great big box with uh, a little slot in one wall, and it has a little caption on, saying, on it saying, ask me anything, and they write a question, pass it in, and they get a response uh, a few minutes later. So they assume that the room, that this device, this box is thinking, but actually what's going on is inside is there, there sits a little man who has no knowledge of the Chinese language whatsoever, but what he does have is just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books with every possible combination of Chinese characters within them. So he just looks up the combination he's been given to return the answer. And at no point in like this cycle does any conscious mind ever have in it the question and the answer, except the people who've done the posing in the first place. Okay. So what if the thing operates like that? It is, it just has, there isn't any real consciousness here. There's just behavior. There's, it's outside of the human framework of understanding. Um, Lucy, Sorry, I've got a point that I'm like desperately trying to like. Yeah, yeah. I think we should keep I talking. Think, Chris, I want to, so I want to bring in something, yeah. but I, yeah, I think it's a good time to I'm bring in a biological finish, but, you know, aspect. But I'm but. just going to say Taylor Swift had one of the best music videos of. <laughs> and, um, but I'm just going to say, um, but um, the the thing I brought up about the teleporter problem, I learned of that from a book uh, by. I, I'm just going to look up the. I can't remember the book, but it's by a guy who was writing about the concept of AI 
in the early 90s and I know he's someone very important and I'm gonna I'm gonna post find and post this book in the ref thread he had a very good name as well um but is this that one you found in Oxfam that time when I was with yeah you? and it's about like early AI but it's about the kind of philosophical ideas of AI <laughs> yes I remember that yeah. book The Coming Robot Rebellion of 1995 yes oh no that was like Robophobia or something that was, that was a different book but 90s books about no, AI and you robots you might be conflating it with that book I found about like the, the coming war between um, Russia and China from 1965 <laughs> but no, that same book which I'm going to link out to in the ref thread um, in that same book I learned about the Chinese the Chinese box um, problem concept call it what you will uh, because they were using that you know they felt that was a very useful uh, analogy for understanding AI um, and then establishing whether or not we could really say uh, artificial intelligence was an intelligence or possessed a kind of consciousness because the person in the room, if, you know, if they're just like some sort of automata who's able to recognize, you know, these things coming in and then put these things, put these corresponding things coming out, but they have no one. Understand- <coughs> but crucially, they don't. <coughs> How's that cigar going, Sean? <coughs> really that wasn't the cigar, that was the whiskey. Do carry on. Okay, crucially, I think they put it like the person in the box doesn't understand Chinese. So they're just kind of putting, taking one yes. thing, putting it into the next. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, is the box conscious if it's exhibiting no consciousness, despite exhibiting something identifiable as consciousness from the outside? Um, but again, you know, this goes back into the thing. And that's, yeah, that's, well, to, to yeah. this point, to, to bring in some sort of real world biological examples of this kind of misinterpretation of consciousness, because we can only ever kind of try to understand it from a human perspective. Um, if you look at parasites, uh, one of the best modules I did at UEA was parasitology. Um, and I should have taken it further, but um, the life cycles and the behavior of these things is so outside of like anything that we can really sort of comprehend on a, from an anthropological expe- uh, perspective. Um, there are some like your basic sort of beef tapeworm exists as a, um, a sort of head entity which latches onto the upper part of the intestine um, and it it produces completely separate um, segments which are just basically sort of egg producing factories um, which have no purpose other than to sort of clone its own DNA into uh, thousands and thousands of eggs and they go off in a chain so what you see as the worm is actually a colony of completely non-sentient uh, factories <laughs> and the way it reacts is completely mechanical there's uh in as much as you could say that like um your basic uh, earwig experiment that you do in sort of like a level science where you put it in the maze and you see how it uh, chooses to go through the maze um it's a totally mechanical decision making process um that is very effective on on a sort of, on a large scale, but it's like how do you transfer consciousness onto that? This um, is uh, sorry, you're going to say something, Lucy? Yeah, yeah. Basically, I mean, this goes back to the slime molds we were talking about—the yeah. fundamental mystery of the slime mold. Because, like, yeah, you put an earwig in a maze, it'll fuck around for a bit and might find its way out of the maze. But like, when you put a slime mold in a maze, it's quite good at finding its way out of the maze mm. because it's able to kind of. It's much more effective because it has no localized center of conscious. Yeah. It, it, it functions on a mathematical level almost that uh, that, that solves the maze um, with ease. And and 
Um, what was the other thing? There was uh, oh yeah, and then of course to go on to um, the transfer of consciousness uh, problem that we were talking about earlier with the, the ship built out of different materials. Um, just looking at uh, moths and butterflies pupating and becoming a, an entirely visually uh, different, biologically different entity. They go through a phase where they completely liquefy. Um, and and uh, and reconstitute themselves, uh, which is like horrific and very and very similar to uh, how the thing works. You know, I mean, it reminds so this reminds me a little bit of um, not what Darwin said about the um, the parasitic wasp. Yeah, sort of like that. Uh, you know, sort of like it, it, that. It doesn't kill the caterpillar; it lays its eggs inside of it, just paralyzes it. Yeah, and so there's like, no need to kill. In fact, it would be disadvantageous to kill the host. <laughs> yeah, because I remember sort of like thinking better uh, about like something about Darwin, like said that because uh, like Darwin's always clear he wasn't strictly speaking an atheist, but sort of like he said that like stuff like that, like that made him doubt there could be a benevolent force presiding over over <laughs> history and, and existence. And I, but I'm just thinking about like just the fact that how pupation of larvae works is kind of enough to make me doubt my religious convictions because it's just well, why, why would you make such a well, thing god i mean there's actually like even though like I, I don't i think i think mark Steele is incredibly hit and miss as a comedian one of the things he did that was very good at one point when he was doing the mark Steele lectures about various famous figures he did one about darwin and about kind of darwin's own struggles with god um which included well, inc- included two scenes where they just like filmed a choir, but you couldn't really make out the words, but they just put subtitles. One of them that's not as relevant was the <laughs> it just showed a choir of people singing God put us in our places, punch our ugly faces, <laughs> which is very good. But the other bit was um, like, it's a ve- it, they do a new version of All Things Bright and Beautiful. Um, but about the parasitic wasp. And it's like, and the line is... Um, it, oh, um, it gloms onto the caterpillar and lays its eggs inside to make sure that the meat's fresh. It keeps the thing alive. All things bright and beautiful. <laughs> um, that is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, like, and and I mean, going back to going back to the alien thing. Like, there was one thing I, I wanted to bring up earlier, which is the fact that you know that um, this story is. Um, based on a short story um, by someone called, I think this is John, John W. Who goes there? John, well, in fact, like, actually, no, this is a thing. Um, other kind of cutting-edge topical news brought to you by Weird Signal is the fact that it wasn't actually originally a short story. It was a novel that was cut down. And the original manuscript of the novel has now been found and is being published by Dark Regions Press. Dark Regions Press also published Lucy's first short story in their collection, Dreams of the Witch House, which is available from the internet. Yeah, it's 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 not that much to buy at this point. Um, (laughs) But a pretty, pretty solid anthology. Um, And, you know, in fact, talk about AI a bit in that, if you're interested in following up my take on this earlier. Uh, That's cool. Um, but no, we were just going into like ego, Lucy Brady ego hour, um, <laughs> but, um, uh, pause and carry on. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, so John Campbell Jr.'s, um, John W. Campbell Jr.'s story, um, it does actually start with them not finding a dog, but finding a, f- they find, they're the ones who find the frozen alien. Um, but what they've found, what they think is like a frozen entity that's dead, that it's, and they describe it in quite spe- Describe it in that Lovecraftian way where they'll list off its biological attributes uh, or anatomical attributes, but not actually 
give a core sense of what the thing looks like. So it's, you know, it's it's so unspeakable horror, but they do put it as like, no, it's a it's a coherent biological being. And Absolutely. they just, yeah. And, yeah. and other, a, another thing yeah. from the film, uh, the, it, it, it has, um, to sort of go back to sort of real biology, it has solutions to problems which humans would never think of because they're not capable biologically um, to just simply freeze itself. When it, when it, when it finds itself threatened, to the point where it doesn't see any escape from the base. It's like yeah. they go, oh, it just wants to freeze itself and go into hiding again so it can so be rediscovered. Someone in distant posterity will find it again. Because it's been frozen for 100,000 years already, they say. Yeah. Or, 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 or thereabouts, which can't... Which, um, uh, yeah, because that's... going to wait them out. <laughs> yeah, because that's, the kind of, that's the kind of timescales that it can deal with. Mm. Um, or which are irrelevant to it. Totally irrelevant, yeah. Oh my god. Oh. Oh. Basically, I think the main thing that we can learn from um, the various questions that are thrown up and continue to be thrown up by the film The Thing and the ambiguity of The Thing, which we can only ever refer to as The Thing, um, is the, is the, is just, you know, the overabundant horror inherent in nature, um, which is just there all around us. And that comes back into, you know, this is how humans engage with cosmic horror. Cosmic horror is like, is kind of, I think it's what can you know, it's that it's this idea actually going back to Eugene Thacker, this is what Thacker describes he describes it in kind of Kantian terms, which it is you know, Lovecraftian cosmic horror is a very Kantian thing because it's um comes back to the philosophical problem he brought up of like phenomena versus noumena. Sean is shaking his head I in a very philosophy student way. For the student, I have a master's, thank okay, you very yeah, much. Former philosophy student come master. Thank you. Uh, look, I, I, I think there's an important point to be made there about why this can't be called Kantian, and this is something that I'm not going to say pre-racist Nick Land, but pre-openly fashion Nick Land back in the 90s pointed out, uh, in that um, the Kantian notion of the sublime is... uh, is, Does that predate the Burkean notion of the sublime? Oh, you know, I'm not sure, but I don't think it would have been related to it, because... um, it would have been very much well, right I mean, off. Does it, does it, pre- it, it almost certainly doesn't predate the Longinus dis- definition of the sublime, so we can just keep going. Yeah, the Kantian notion of the sublime, it's the, um, v- uh, uh, v- and this is, like I said, what's something that Nick Land looks at, is that um, when we witness uh, uh, a thunderstorm, like exploding over the night ocean or something like really typically grand and like faintly Teutonic like that, um, can like how holds that the experience we have is a curious one of on the one hand we're able to as as rational agents like witness and comprehend the magnitude of power being displayed here in the same way if we look at a mountain we can go oh that's big or look at an ocean and go wow that's wide or and so on and so on but we always are able to 
um, distance ourselves from it and preserve ourselves from this power by kind of falling back on our status as not only rational entities but for Kant also as uh, immortal spirits because um, Kant is like is still Christian for he was philosophy. A clever Christian. Uh, he was a clever Christian, <laughs> and um, he uh, and this is something that <laughs> was that uh, just a kind of like tacit David Bentley Hart shout out again. Yes, it was. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and um, he, but what he, but what, um, what Nick Land like resists in that and I think is a very good angle to take if you want to resist this is that this uh relation with the sublime which preserves you from cosmic horror this mm -hmm. is the important link here is one that only makes sense if you are able to still kind of like insist on your irreducible importance or or, or simply on your irreducibility as a rational thinking thing as a conscious thing as spirit as soul and if we are, as is the case with this film, or at least taking just the, the materialist angle that no, we're just biology, we're just matter, then that is why cosmic horror can't, cannot exist in a theistic worldview, because you can't, it has to assume you are as vulnerable as everything else, and you are as reducible to further base elements as anything else. Okay, but, okay, I understand that we... Categorical. <laughs> well, I just wonder because what I'm immediately thinking of at this point is the blood test, and the 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 sure. point yeah. in that. So 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 the blood betrays the 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 creature, the thing, um, because its self is completely divisible down to every down down to, to the smallest point, almost like that atom of existence that you were talking about. Every atom of the thing is the thing, whereas ourselves blood is just blood it's not conscious it just burns it's just a material it's fuel um but that for me is the point where if you really think about that that's when your sense of self completely breaks down because where is the self if we are just material mm. um so in a theistic world well obviously yeah that there's something within the material which is not the material and that's the soul <laughs> thinking out loud here because i'm sort of like <laughs> working this out but yeah, like these are definitely yeah these are these are core stuff well, yeah, this was meant to be an episode we didn't do any theology i am yeah, sorry yeah. listener I, i've not been uh, interested in the soul for a long <laughs> time <laughs> now because i'm coming back to it <laughs> but uh what's it going to roll the podcast um carry on sorry uh yeah so i mean can, but you're saying that cosmic horror can't exist in a world with God or can't coexist. No, it can't or, because it because it does assume it assumes purpose ultimately. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I know, I know categorically we can't describe Lovecraft as Kantian for the sheer fact that he was an atheist. But so there have been attempts at reconciling atheism with Kant, which aren't oh. which aren't successful. And also, honest, but... there, there are some attempts at uh, reconciling uh, religion with Lovecraft by... Who's oh, like, There's a guy... I'm going to link out to him. He's, he's featured on the Lovecraft Literary Podcast. He can, he can reconcile spiritual practice with Lovecraft. That's what, like, literally Kenneth Grant's whole career. Yeah, but I think he, was, he was sentimental about Protestant New England. Uh, <laughs> yes. but, yeah, but, but I will at least say in my defence, like, um, Eugene Thacker, in describing the fundamental nature of cosmic horror, uses the terminology world for us, world for itself, or in itself, which he's borrowing from Kant. I mean, I... I mean, he's using, he's using on a very, very, like, 
uh, very surface level Kantian terminology to better articulate these ideas about cosmic horror, which uh, I believe he even he even then goes on to kind of deconstruct in further ways. Yeah, because this actually goes back to something that we saw. I briefly touched on the interview with uh, David Roden um, that. Um, these are my issues with the speculative realists, and I don't. I think they are um, to an extent. I'm not accusing Eugene Thacker of sloppy thinking because like, oh, anything here because that's not like he's, he's not trying to establish like a system of his books. He's just doing something like fun and cool and clever with them. But this is my problem with speculative realism as a project. And I do think it is misusing and misunderstanding these concepts because I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Well, the whole point of like what Kant demonstrates is you can't sensibly dis- sensibly discuss something that lies outside the world for us we can't you you, you literally cannot no. because that that is the boundary of thought but i mean lovecraft you know just going back on the surface level about the weird lovecraft's whole thing was just even though lovecraft is famous well people talk about his subtlety how he never quite describes a creature he, he is not a subtle writer he <laughs> describes creatures in unbelievable amounts of detail but i think this is deliberate because he's showing you all these details to demonstrate the, the, the failure, the uselessness of listing these recognisable details to describe something that can't fundamentally be described in human terms. Yeah, this is something that mm. um, Michelle Welbeck, in his um, very, very interesting book-length uh, essay, H.P. Lovecraft Against the World Against Life, which I really would recommend to anybody who's interested in these ideas and interested in, like, like Lovecraft as more than just uh, a pulp horror fiction writer, for all of Welbeck's own, like, perversions and awfulnesses. Um, he talks about the fact that in... Um, um, at the Mountains of Madness, which is the Antarctica story, um, that when the uh, the expedition discovers the uh, the preserved corpses of the great uh, elder civili- elder aliens that previously ruled the uh, ruled the world, they list them in very very precise anatomical detail. And what Welbeck, in my opinion, correctly identifies is that though this is precisely the horror of them, in that they are profoundly scientifically real and this this goes all the way back to what we've been saying since episode one that what this kind of horror deals with is the horror which is not supernatural it's not the vampire the werewolf it's the black hole mm. it's that mark fisher talks about in, mark, in the eerie it's, yeah. the, it's the black hole it's entropy it's the it's the million cancers that could just consume your body it's these ir- horrifyingly unquestionably real things as we've said a couple of times already on this podcast everything is as a thought everything is as a thought but the discourse is real (laughs) yeah yeah oh it's just a little a minor thought that's coming to my head while you were speaking um just to do with lovecraft's um description uh possibly extrapolating more than what is written down but um if you think about the, the the higher beings, the old gods, the, uh, as as intrusions into this realm of higher dimensional beings, um, I've been watching a few like nice little uh, YouTube videos about um, how to represent fourth and fifth dimensional uh, geometry in three dimensional space, and like um, how things leave shadows, which are sort of um, disconnected, confusing shapes, uh, which is just like. Uh, uh, you know, so yeah. so uh, so a, a five-dimensional shape will leave a four-dimensional shadow, which you can represent in this way. But it's sort of it's it's the 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 biology of these of the creatures in, in Lovecraft is kind of like that. It's it's disconnected, and that, 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 what's the term he uses? Like non-Euclidean geometry yeah. and that oh, kind of thing. Geez, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. 
We've gone completely into Lovecraft realm. I don't oh, know how this fun. relates yeah, to the this film. Is basic, this <laughs> is basically a, this is a Lovecraftian film. This yeah, is cosmic horror. This, this is fundamentally, but it's so. yeah, but it, I, I like it because it's it's Lovecraftian, but like you say, it ties down very specifically to uh, uh, real world biology and um, uh, yeah, so a sci-fi grounding that keep. But the but the cosmic horror is kind of lurking behind that. Yeah. Also, it's not racist. Yeah. So, oh well, I think. It's, I mean, I, I, I'm not the. I'm, no, it's I'm not, not racist. We're all white. Racist in the film. I mean, except except for except for the inherent racism of of, of Hollywood cinema. But other mm. than that, I th- we're not the people to have this conversation. Yeah. Uh, we're uh, sorry. Um, uh, yeah. Are we going to talk a little bit about um, uh, masculinity and, well, and they're uh, all men? <laughs> bravado. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to that. But I just <laughs> wanted to kind of bring up the fact that even though. Um, well, I guess this is kind of a logical con- continuation. There was, oh, there was something that I wanted to say. Oh, I've forgotten this plane, but I might come come up with it later. But basically, um, what were you talking about uh, the, before before the last part? Before just now, yeah, about fourth dimensional fourth dimension. Oh yeah, spaces. I, I just wanted to bring up the fifth fact that like spaces. one of my favorite works by you is a print that you made of like I think it's like a bird like creature in um, surrounded by some like abstract geometrical forms. And it's just got the caption underneath it on a kind of banderol, like, when you die, there's maths. Ah, yes. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I love This will that. be available as a back patch from my Etsy shop very soon, so look that up. <laughs> when you die, there is maths. I think, I think that's, like, kind of... I think that's a very, very Lovecraftian sentient sentiment. Mm. It's better than I, do, I actually um, said sentient, but it's, yeah, it yeah. is the um, that is the about that is pure cosmic horror. Yeah. I, I, thank you for reminding me of that. That's wonderful. But it, uh, I find it strangely comforting. I think, like, uh, for somebody who is essentially non-theistic, and uh, there to to imagine a somewhat of a continuance um, through through the through maths. <laughs> <laughs> indeed through a kind of uh, shape-shifting amorphous interdimensional en- <laughs> interplanetary entity. Yeah. So um, I think this is really leading us to the overwhelming question that's been behind everything we've said so far, which is, should they have had sex with the thing? Should they have fucked the thing? <laughs> there's well, no, there's, there's no, no thing, fucking the thing. Actually, no, I'm the thing get... fucks you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By which, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm getting, I'm, I'm very much getting to that question. Um, but well, before I go on, to right it, I wanted it. to talk about gender, and gender is something that comes into this film a lot. But I guess this, this thing I want to talk about just ne- right now also kind of crosses over into a gender territory. But um, if we're stepping back from the cosmic, if we're stepping back into the realms of human experience and human history. And indeed, stepping back into the realms that we crossed over a lot with with Praetor Liminar about the human, the kind of like different ideological stances on the incomprehensible and biologically terrifying. Um, is the film the thing? Is it a demon in a certain sense? Are we looking at a kind of living demonstration of the concept of demonology? Because, or demonic possession more specifically. I mean, because yes. you talked about possession a bit, like the, in, 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 like... Um, like how how a bi- you know how like a parasite how how, how we com- compare like a parasite mm. and a demon. I think the, the 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 horror of the movie is situated in a lineage of which is which is related to demonic possession if you can track it back through sort of the, the um, sort of original demonic possession through to. Um, where did I have my notes for this? 
What did I say? It doesn't possess humans in the way that a malicious spirit would, using the body while supplanting the will. It remains dormant until directly threatened, and at which point it assumes full control. But this is... So it's, 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 it's intrinsically different from a, from a demonic possession where the horror comes from um, the, the, the will being supplanted and the struggle between the consciousness of the possessed and the demonic entity. This is a silent possession that is, you, you're not aware of it. As we talked about when he, he checks his like uh, recording of his own voice and, 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 and the, the, the paranoia is like looking at everyone around you, but also at yourself. You don't know if you've been infected. So it's a very sci-fi take on it, but it, but it does essentially manifest itself as a demonic entity, as something outside supernatural and outside of our understanding. Yeah. And, 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 and this is the thing that I was going to bring back, like right to, you know, our, our beginning discussions of the idea of body horror, because um, basically one of the things I, I talked about uh, something in the Shivers episode was the fact that, um, that there's kind of like the whole idea of body horror we get comes as a kind of creative lineage um, that we get to Cronenberg via Ballard uh, in the in a very literal sense because uh, Shivers is pretty much an adaptation of like um, more or less an adaptation of High Rise in a certain sense but like Ballard was very much influenced by the Surrealists but um, but the theme of demonology uh, and evil in a traditional theistic sense translates a lot and uh, was a thing uh, taken up a lot by the Surrealists um, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna leave my saint anthony thing aside because like i i i've, I've actually got a, i've got an essay out there on on, de- on on the demonology connection between surrealism and saint anthony and i am in fact wearing a t-shirt <laughs> depicting saint anthony being attacked by demons that sean very nicely got me for christmas um but the the thing um but you know that aside um there is kind of just coming back to the connections between biology and demonology i think there's a great kind of there's a question here because the history of illness, um, both mental illness and physiological illness, is a kind of very much a shared history with demonology. Um, we get we get like the classic thing, like I think it was um, the, the 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 physician Hippocrates, where we get the term Hippocratic Oath. Um, one of the things, actually, no, Hippocrates was one of the first people to engage with this, but up until that point, the concept of epilepsy was some was something that um, physicians of the age just failed to comprehend they just couldn't understand it they couldn't form a rational approach to um to diagnosing it or treating it um and so it was kind of chalked up to demonic possession a lot of the time and hippocrates who i think he was like one of the kind of post-aristotelian as uh, arabic philosophers um but you know he has a good name because it was a hellenized culture but i'm, I'm gonna have to fact check that eventually i'll but... show that I don't know. I honestly don't know. He was no. like kind of like he was a post-Galenic physician. I'm going to say that much, but, um, but yeah, he he was the first one to take a kind of more of a scientific approach. But but it still endured this idea of connecting between um, between kind of demonic possession and epilepsy, um, and also the fact that like um, the yeah, there's I mean, there's a whole weird history to go into with the fact that like. Um, at the theatre of Dionysius, um, the Dionysiac, you know, the, the kind of the quasi-ritual, quasi-theatrical uh, rituals that the Greeks would hold, um, incorporated into their state, you know, their big uh, places, their arenas or whatever, you know, the the um, uh, amphithe- the theatres. Um, there were 
at what amount it, I'm, I'm going to have to check my notes on this, but I think there was like something they would actually treat people with mental illnesses through a sort of articulation of uh, thematic ideas connected to the theatre of Dionysus. That's, that, that's, that's very, the, that's very um, uh, um, similar to R.D. Lang's approach. Oh yeah, no, it's like pro, super proto-R.D. Lang, but... Or rather, I, I think I, I think I want to say R.D. Lang was a yeah. drawing from them rather than they I were think, prefiguring think, Lang 2,000 years later. I but. think um, this, I think we're going to need to do a um, an episode on the history of madness and mental illness, but... Um, that, that's the episode the where, we, where we stop talking about movies forever and become yeah. a Foucault podcast. Oh my which God. I, for one, yeah. welcome. And also, like, um, like, well, I, I took a unit in uni on history of medicine, and I, I talked to uh, people who did history of medicine, and they fucking despise Foucault. But I'm that's not, for another podcast. I'm not surprised. There are good reasons for schol- for scholarship to be suspicious of Foucault. Um, for everyone to be suspicious of Foucault. But like, what, to tie yeah. to tie in the demonology with the um, bio horror aspect, mm-hmm. I could link that to some of my own artwork. Definitely. Um, that's <laughs> definitely do. something that we looked at in when, well, when we were thinking about Praetolim, the whole idea behind the Praetoliminazine and like uh, what I was interested in my art. And that, at that point in time was um, uh, demons as misunderstood biological entities. Um, but also if you, if you extrapolate from that, well, what would a... Uh, Okay, conception of an entity comes from a uh, uh, anthropological perspective. What we see as a dog has recognisable features—a face, legs, um, things that we can, things that help us understand it as a throbbing living being. Tendrils. A throbbing, throbbing tendrils uh, <laughs> erupting out into the wall. Um, spider legs. Spider legs coming out of its spine. Exactly. So. What I was interested in artistically was um, at what point, how much can you subvert the basic plan of what we understand as a conscious entity before it breaks down mm. and um, becomes just raw flesh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the the demons that I was sort of creating for the Praetoliminar thing were like very much uh, em- like you can empathize with them as, 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 as entities, even though they are literally constructed from scavenged parts of other animals so if you look at some of uh, the work i did uh, it's like uh, skeletons recreated from various different animals and pieced together and then i tried to sort of figure out how the musculature and things would lay over that um to try and construct a new creature um but from that i've gone now on to using uh biological recognizable biological parts to create more of a fractal landscape and something that is like not recognizable as a biological entity i mean you can't get any more maths than fractals and maths is like as far from physicality as you can understand um but yeah this is like big future projects hopefully (laughs) and will involve lots of rats (laughs) but (laughs) yeah yeah Hopefully. Give me four years. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing I was talking about, like, um, in fact, we were talking earlier about the Greek philosophers and the idea of, like, and, and in fact, this was, like, sparked by um, your mention of Parmenides' insistence on the non-existence of change. Um, this, I can see this being a continuity in Plato's idea of, like, the perfect platonic entity. No, 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 that's not quite oh, right. Um, okay, Plato, was, on, Plato, Plato was drawing from Parmenides. Okay. But part 
but Pla- but we refer to Plato when we think about this concept. Yeah, because like because Pla- Plato is kind of how how I was taught it was at least was that Plato was kind of like inspired by both Heraclitus and Parmenides and the notion that the material world is defined by flux and change, but beyond it, there's a purer, true, more true world, which is unchanging and immaterial which is what Parmenides glimpsed and but but when we talk about like a perfect form of an animal we talk about it as its platonic whole yes because like like, I mean that Plato Mm. like from like drawing from Parmenides developed a notion or possibly Socrates developed this notion and then Plato articulates it or whatever um that make that there are these um that in a realm which is I don't know. It's difficult to talk about it because I kind of want. To, I want to give as much like credence to the idea as I can, and this is something that is still debated two thousand years later. Exactly what Plato means here, if like more recent theorists have suggested that he's actually talking about how cognition works, uh-huh. and he's not actually discussing some kind of metaphysical reality. But what is generally taken to be the case, what Plato is um, discussing, is the notion that um, speaking very broadly, okay, you have tables, right? But in order to make a table, you need to have this idea of table in your head in order to construct a table. And you have these kind of like subsidiary forms of knowledge like wood cleverness and saw cleverness and hammer cleverness. They're kind of these forms of kind of like take up this realm of a lower form of knowledge that all comes together and it's unified by the idea of table <laughs> as table, almost. And so this is something like some theorists have suggested that he might actually be talking about how cognition works. But generally, it's taught and held traditionally that he means that beyond any particular table or tree or per- or human being e- even, there lies outside of materiality and flux and change an unchanging, immaterial, perfect form of table or person. It should be stated actually that in one of his late one of his later dialogues is generally taken to be called the Parmenides, which depicts a conversation between a young Socrates and a very elderly Parmenides. They do actually go through several different formulations of how this idea could actually work. They're discussing. I think it's been a very long time since I've studied this, but not, I think they talk about: is there a platonic ideal of mud? Is there a platonic ideal of? <laughs> to me, this is this is to 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 accept this <laughs> this uh, philosophy is is terrifying. It goes against everything. But well, I mean, I, the only reason <laughs> I bring it up is to state that Plato himself was like he wasn't. I mean, he, he was aware that. I don't. This is how I'm. Try, I'm exploring these ideas. I'm sure. exploring this thinking. And the Parmenides goes through all of these different ways, these ontologies that it could take place, and does not settle on any of them. Yeah, it's kind of like he's almost like thinking it through still. Um, he, as a philosopher, should really yeah. absolutely. Um, and I'm gonna at this point do another regrettable Richard Dawkins shout out. <laughs> Hello. Um, because I mean, well, I mean, these these are ideas that were established before Dawkins to ha- happened to be quite a talented writer for articulating these ideas. But one of the key points he brings up is the fact that, like, by by, uh, thank you, Sean. Huh? Basically, one of the things he brings up is the fact that, like, by the mid 19th century, mathematics physics um 
and other kind of natural sciences had, uh, you know, developed to a point which was, you know, staggering. You know, that, you know, you have, you have, you've got Isaac Newton by this point, you've got all of his incredibly sophisticated ideas, but biology always kind of hung around in the background. It was always lagging behind. And what he attributes this to is something he refers to, and I'm sure other people before him referred to as the dead hand of Plato, because um, the reason why it took us so long to get to what is basically quite a simple and elegant um, concept of Darwinian um, natural selection is because we took Plato to heart. We took we took it to heart as, and, and which is, which is I'm guessing what made you so uncomfortable with this idea. The biological entities were fundamentally static and immutable, mm. which they're absolutely not. I I. And I, I'm going to be completely upfront. I've, I've never actually sat down and read a Richard Dawkins book because um, since I tried to, since I read a little bit of the God Delusion, I wasn't impressed. By Did, it. You um, should always start with the selfish gene and then, uh, yeah. and then put it down and then read something <laughs> <Yeah>. by a <laughs> different. Uh, look him up on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I am unsure how much credit how much credit I want to give to that idea um, simply because he's such an asshole. I mean that, but but also no. Um, I, I think it's worth bearing in mind certain other things going on here. Like, uh, like if, if what if the case he's making is that it just took a personality and a will as powerful as Dar as, as Charles Darwin to break us out of Platonism. Well, uh, I mean, we've got but, Alfred Russell Wallace to thank as well. No, because the reason I want to... Because I think that if that's the case he's presenting... And he might not be. I, I, I've not read it. Please don't quote me on this. Uh, I, I'm going from what <laughs> Lucy has said here. But yeah. if that's the case he's making, if that's the case he's making, then that's not true. Because for about a hundred years almost, up until Charles Darwin, it was like known in Western thought that something like evolution had to be true. What hadn't been determined was its mechanism. Because you have pre-Darwinian mm -hmm. notions of evolutionary oh, theory. Of descendants like, of, yeah, yeah. Lamarck. It's been a long time since I read and, this. And, I think, yeah. and, and, is, and I, one thing I will give him is it is true that, like, because Newton think, I mean, Newton bizarrely considered himself more than anything a theologian. And he actually articulated secret, I think we've mentioned this on this podcast before, he in secret articulated the non-Trinitarian Christianity of his own devise, which he considered... Which is, a, like a fairly recent discovery as well. Yeah, that's very, that's, that's in the last hundred years that like the, these papers of Newton was discovered in which he denies the Trinity and thus cut himself out of the salvation won for him by Christ but hello, uh, <laughs> hello. <laughs> but um, I oh god I don't this, 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 this perspective is but, interesting to bring in at this point um, scientifically uh, his theories were incorrect um, but the, 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 the ideas behind them have since been um, given some credence at the, the the one that you're given at GCSE is of course oh the um, giraffe has a longer neck because during its mm. lifetime it stretches up to reach the leaves and then uh, that that it literally lengthens its neck and then that trait is passed on to its um, offspring. There is a certain credence to that in modern epigenetics where genes can change due to factors during the organism's life, mm. which then are literally inherited it should um, it, i think it should also be stated that it wasn't as if um 
um, on the origins of species is published and then the scales fall from every, everyone's eyes especially because up until I think it was the uh, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong here Chris it wasn't up until the early 20th century there was a period where Darwin's Darwin's conception of evolution was in eclipse and the more favoured conception of what evolution was was the notion of a tendency to what the inherent tendency of organisms towards complexity so that you organisms just have a tendency where they become more complicated and you go from single cell to multi-cell I, i'm not certain if that's something that dawkins that's takes into account because again i've not i've not I read it but... i remember that specifically in dawkins but it's an interesting point in terms of uh yeah, certainly the progression of um, RNA to DNA to multicellular organisms, like it's it's a progression towards complexity because amassing complexity is what these molecules want to do. Because <laughs> yeah, really weren't done with biology corner, were we? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Because what Darwin kind of like hits upon, that I understand it, is what he hit upon was the mechanism that appears that that governs as far as as far as we're aware now because we if we're going to be good scientists about it we should recognize that this is an extreme that um it is there that um actually i don't sure i want to complete this thought because it's going to make me sound like a fucking creationist or something but up until this point this is the most compelling and most like thoroughly tested and um um sustainable mechanism we've we thought of how evolution works so far this notion that that um, it is through um, adaptability to circumstances of what allows species to specify and which dictates which organisms in the state of nature survive and which don't survive. Sure. That's what Darwin hit upon. He didn't like it wasn't he didn't hit upon the notion that entities vary uh, across historical time. That wasn't something that, I think it was his grandfather like published a really influential book. Like, I think it's Erasmus Darwin, like, published a book called, um, I forget what it's called, but he start, like he developed a lot of these ideas about, okay, en entities clearly do this, living things clearly vary over history. There's mm. actually a very kind of coming, lit student corner <laughs> coming in. Uh, there's a very interesting thing that's like a popular misconception is um, in, I think it was either Byron or Shelley's diaries about the Gothic incident where they all like went where mary shelley percy shelley uh john polidori and lord byron went to a cottage uh in switzerland together and it was there that uh, polidori wrote the vamp the started writing the vampire and shelley started writing frankenstein um in one of the diaries they record they were talking about darwin and people are like oh shit no there's like there's a whole kind of darwinian perspective brought into frankenstein but in fact they're talking about erasmus darwin and not charles darwin um <laughs> And I think, actually, I think this came up in um, Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which I haven't listened to in a long time, and maybe I should, because it's very good. I'm going to recommend uh, I'm gonna recommend a novel that was bought for me by my old philosophy teacher many years ago now. I forget who it's written by, but it's a really, it's a really good novel called The, St the End of Mr. Y. That's the, the letter Y, The End of Mr. Y, which kind of like deals, which kind of looks into notions of... Um, it's just quite a very... It's quite... A, and it's a very aware and interesting novel that deals with notions about... Um, cognition and concept and thought and alternative formulations of evolution i'm not sure how impressed i would be with it if i read it now but i read it it's a, it's a it was a fun book maybe you would like it maybe you won't who knows um i i feel i was going to say something but god knows what i was going to say aristotle that's what i was going to say aristotle Yay! aristotle who plato's uh, student aristotle who resisted a lot of plato's 
more fanciful metaphysical ideas like in the famous that famous beautiful painting the school of athens which is not uh <laughs> as one of my classmates and uh, at uea thought was on depiction of the historical school of athens this more he <laughs> <laughs> was a first year we were all at the extent they all lived at exactly the same time alexander <laughs> the great was there and plato was there and aristotle was there and like zarathustra was there and they were hanging out and like and like the eagle was there and he was drunk by the kegger and that's how um, I remember it. In the middle of that painting is our Plato and Aristotle, and it's a beautiful little piece of symbolism. Doing the, doing the bit, doing the they're doing the bit, but doing the bit. Plato is it, it, Plato is walking. He's in motion, and he is pointing upwards while Aristotle is standing still, oh. his feet on the ground, and his hand is stretched outright, palm to the earth. I am demonstrating this to you, listener, mm. in your mind's eye right now. And what is... Sean is doing a Nazi salute. I'm not doing a Nazi <laughs> salute! No, it's okay, 25 so... degrees off a Nazi salute. <laughs> and, um, but what's quite, what Aristotle was kind of like really into is he wanted to be sort of like very much... No, we're going to be not materialist, because that wouldn't be quite... Oh, no, I suppose he is. No, he is a materialist. But he wanted to try and really develop like a precise categorical taxonomy of what beings are what being is and he is in many ways closer to what we'd think of as a scientist and a philosopher in some ways and he gets very close to thinking of something like evolu like darwinian evolution of an evolution via natural selection in which he, there's a passage where he does reflect on the fact that you have um, cows that give birth to malformed cows and humans giving birth to malformed humans, which, because it's two, two and a half thousand years ago, don't survive. They don't survive long enough to reproduce and make more, like, three-legged cows or, um, or, 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 or whatnot. And he, it feels like he's almost on the cusp of maybe thinking, maybe that's why we're the, we look like as we are. But... The Aristotelian... It's not the Aristotelian cosmology. This I is the Hellenic... Thank you. The Hellenic cosmology, the, the, mm. the, the philosophical cosmology he's working with, which is distinct from the mythological one of Greek culture, is one where he takes it as a, a fair assumption that the universe has always existed as it does. Because if we deny there is a creator uh, deity... And he, he kind of... He thinks there's a force that moves all things, but it's not... It's not Zeus. It's not the pantheon of their culture. He thinks, and this is this was actually the viewpoint, which was the atheist philosophical viewpoint, right up until fucking Darwin, really. Like this is Nietzsche's viewpoint that if there was no creative force, then we should assume things have always been. The universe has, in fact, always existed and does not have a beginning. And he, like, kind of goes from that of assuming a steady state theory of the cosmos, where things have always always existed. And thinks of this in terms of ergo, there have always been human beings, and there have always been cows and trees and islands and and, and so on. And so within the that boundary of thought, he can't conceive of there being anything as drastic as evolutionary shift from one species to of course, another. Because it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a correct <laughs> <laughs> it's a correct understanding of a uh, certain amount without a complete picture of the universe because yeah, so, like you know, um yeah the, the steady state universe was a more consistent philosophical idea of a godless universe than deism was yeah yeah, um, yeah. yeah. but that's uh, that's when you don't have the full picture and so yeah he extrapolated human beings back to the, the eternity there is no dawn of time but like yeah 
like, again, like, like I said, he me, couldn't me, picture the universe. He couldn't picture what we can now. I mean, we didn't know. I mean, we only demonstrated beyond doubt that the universe, uh, in some sense, came to be, definitely came to be in the last hundred years. By for a player, the astronomer, who was a Roman Catholic um, priest as well, who has wanted to prove the universe had a beginning. Because um, mm. that's something, that is a weird bit of cultural memory, but we have almost completely lost in the popular imagination that up until very, very recently, up until living memory, the atheist position was that the universe had always existed. And only very, very recently, because of new scientific discoveries, have we determined beyond any reasonable doubt that the universe does have a distinct point of origin in the beginning. Well, well. Arguably, first... <laughs> first <laughs> no, 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 I mean, like, argue, being, but... like as, a, as a scientist, uh, yes, the, the, the dawn of time, the big, the big Bang, the Great Expansion, but... Uh, compression of all matter down to a single point like if it's all matter and all time what does that single point look like? Well, this is where the we universe the right? <laughs> <laughs> like there is I mean it's a few it's a it's a speculative and a philosophical point what the beginning of the universe um, as stated in modern science actually looks like what what, what you could experience it as and uh, obviously um, probably quite hot but <laughs> <laughs> there's a novel by there's a novel by uh, Paul Anderson called Tau Zero, which is about a spaceship which um, is flying off the Alpha Centauri, and uh, like there's a mechanical fault or something, and they realise that they will not be able to decelerate in order to get there, so they're just going to have to keep on going fast then because of relativity. That means that time um, will be going slower for them. And this just keeps on going on and on and on, and they realise that they will not be able to repair the damage until they reach extragalactic um, velocities for, for, for plot reasons. And what they like determine, determine basically, what happens in the novel, that's quite wonderful, quite fascinating, thank you, Lucy, is that um, they will continue... That, the entire history of the universe, because like Paul assumes a cyclical universe, they witness the formation of the next monoblock. They, they mm. witness the aging and the collapse of the universe again, and they're able to withstand the Big Bang and start again. Mm. It's quite a fun little book, though I have just ruined it for anyone who was going to yeah. read it. Read it. It's not that good. Some time, doesn't it? Well, there yeah. you go. Hey. Uh, but there's one time is precious. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel we that. On, I feel uh, one hour and a half. <laughs> I feel that Lucy really wants to talk about some of the gender okay. stuff. Yeah, and, let's, uh, let's get oh, onto that. I, I'm going to kick this off by asserting that because I don't know different, that all, all the characters in this are queer. Okay. Well, I'm going to kick off by asserting that I'm going to get to that. <laughs> Finish talking if you hear laughter, that's Chris's girlfriend in the background there. Hey, Sophie. <laughs> hey, Sophie. Sophie Crow, hey. check her out on Instagram. And, um, but yeah, definitely we'll, we'll plug, to that. plug for Sophie um, Crow. Basically, like, I'm, I don't want you to elaborate on this. I merely say for purposes of I a think segue, Chris and I have, de- have dominated the conversation talk about, for a while. Can we so. just, for a second, as we raise our glasses and our bourbon. can we talk about Mac chucking his bourbon into the computer as he loses a game of chess? I'm getting to that, I'm getting to that. Okay, but I feel like like we're losing the chess game of this episode, but... No, we're not. Okay, no, we're we're fucking winning. We're fucking nailing the go game of this episode, (laughs) even if we're losing chess. (laughs) But basically, like, I'm just going to wrap up with, like, okay, do you remember when we talked about the Blair Witch? And, like, witch trials and the link to demonology there, right? Do you remember that? Yes. Yes. Um, basically, I think this has, like, this has a lot of demonological crossover 
with um, with that whole thing we were talking about. Shout out to Medieval Death Trip podcast. We love you, that guy. Um, basically, like what we're seeing is a fucking witch panic. We're seeing kind of like a kind of paranoia surrounding something we're not quite able to understand crossing over into um, a rigid society and paranoia and chaos and self-destruction emerging from it. I'm going to pick that up again. But basically, like, the the thing that I that struck me when we were talking about um, blood earlier, the blood test scene, is like, so, so you know, this is like a witch panic. This is, this is... Um, like a ducking stool. Like a ducking stool. But one of the things that particularly struck, my, struck, my, struck me was the fact that, like, the blood test scene has a very, very evocative character compared to the anti-Semitic blood libel tradition where kind of um, specifically the idea that kind of there was an inherent kind of theological message um, encoded in blood and that the idea of like, you know, the, the, the Jews making um, ungodly matzah out of the blood of children um, had, uh, there was a long-standing tradition in medieval artwork where they would present like the blood leaking out of you know they would desecrate the Eucharist, but the Eucharist because it it was determined to kind of out this evil happening, and um, and you know and um, show like show show Christians the true light of justice to then exact on earth. The blood would leak out of the corrupted matzah uh, or desecrated Eucharist, um, depending on which source you go from and like spill under the door and then the door would be visible to the Christians looking on and being like, oh, there's blood leaking out of the door. Uh, let's go in and arrest these Jews because they're doing horrific things to children. And you know, that was a long thing. And like the blood scene, the blood, the truth in the blood, mm. that's, that's pure blood libel. That is like, that is so intense. And you know, I'll link back to that episode of Medieval Death Trip podcast. It's such a, such an evocative scene for that reason. Absolutely. But, but like this, this, this totally links to demonology. Um, this idea of like because because we were talking about physical mutability and the platonic whole, and and the Platon- the idea of the platonic whole did leak over into Christianity um, via Saint Augustine for the most part, but other speakers as well. I mean, about so, Nietzsche famously said that um, Christianity was Platonism for the masses. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, um, and um, and yeah, and so it's kind of like. Um, well, one of the things that I was going to bring up in this in this thing is that there is a fundamental association between physical mutability and evil. Um, this is brought up in the St. Anthony legend, which I'm definitely going to talk about another time because we definitely don't have time for it here. But um, but this goes back to the Garden of Eden, the devil, the, the embodiment of evil and sin transforming itself into a snake because it is defying the rule of God, the rule of the Neoplatonically interpreted God, Yahweh, um, to um, to change itself because it defies the divine plan. And so, you know, this is such a, you know, we can't think of um, demonology or we can't think of biological biomorphism outside of theological terms for that reason. Um, but... Um, this also has a kind of crossover into, you know, there's always a gendered dimension to demonology, hence the whole witch cult thing, which we talked about a whole bunch in our other episodes, um, which is the Aristotelian, well, no, the Platonic idea that, um, that females are corrupted or mutated men because they are the corruption of the ideal human form, which is male, and then they metamorphose and... Uh, 
they're not inherently evil, but they are much more susceptible to evil because they are existing in the same mm. sphere as this um, and this kind of morphology. Um, and that's where I bring in the fact that, like, yes, as Sean wonderfully said, and Sean is still smoking that cigar. Well, I've relit it, but yes. Relit it, and we are still <laughs> yeah, drinking we're on the We finished the bourbon, by the way, my beauties. A, um, this is a mask-for-mask mask film, but, um, but mm. at the same time, because all the men... You know, because this is showing a failure of masculinity, because very every so. single... Every single character in the film is male, and that's a very, very important thing to remember. Every single entity is male, and that this is something an early critic of the film picked up, is the fact that this allows the audience to project a form of femininity onto the creature. Um, And that's very, very interesting because um, there's a contemporary thinker who I want to bring up, because we've talked a lot about Nick Land, but we haven't talked so much about, or at all, about his um, stra- his strange kind of internet-based shitposting, uh, weird theory cave Twitter uh, counterpart, which is one Nixland, who um, last year on Halloween published a paper, a black paper, entitled Gender Accelerationism, um, which, is, which is a very, very elaborate thing. We'll link out to that. But basically, her essential premise is that um god I, <laughs> we've been going so long i've forgotten the thread of this but basically um her idea for her interpretation of how the coming acceleration would work is that the uh, the coming acceleration is fundamentally female because um because masculinity and she she um i'll talk about computers in a moment but she identifies kind of femininity as being a kind of well, she depicts no. It's 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 more important to start with pa- the patriarchy as defined through you know her reading of Deleuze and Guattari, which she derived uh, to some extent from uh, Nick Land. Uh, the idea that patriarchy is a a brutal. It's kind of enforcing the kind of Judeo-Christian, sna- well, you know, Platonic Christian, static nature of the world. And the enforcement of order, of force, of um, of rules, um, and set and and then sets against that the idea that femininity by against that is this idea of um, of flexibility, mm, fluidity. mutability, fluidity, ability to um, to kind of mould itself to situations, which in a world. But, you know, she carries this over into her idea of the future because the world is becoming so segmented, because information is so freely exchanged, because the idea of nationhood and traditional forms of power are breaking down so rapidly. Something something understood as, you know, I think I'm going to straight up say I don't know how to clearly define the patchwork because that is something that's very, very sophisticated that I don't think I can possibly summarise in this bit. But um, sorry, don't mind me interjecting. Isn't the Patrick of Mencius Moldbug? Is it? Um, well, that's the thing. Um, I haven't, I haven't, read, I haven't of, read the Black Paper. There's so. a lot of thinking around the idea of patchwork, but something uh, Xenogothic, um, who write, who does a very good blog on Twitter, um, identified as the fact that like we get the terminology of patchwork and a lot of the fundamental workings of the patchwork from Mencius Moldbug, but I think he he. 
Uh, Mencius Moldbugs is very much a kind of conservative or at least right-leaning version of the concept of the patchwork and that there is a version of the left patchwork which has its own thing. Well, I mean, I, I talked to him, I think we can get him on the show at some point to, be, to make this point a lot better than I can. But, um, but the point still stands. Basically, um, nationhood is breaking down, the world is becoming more amenable to these kind of, because the world is becoming more complex, it creates a space for more complex entities. And it's this that Nixland identifies with the feminine, or rather the feminine is better suited to dealing with uh, more complex, more decentralized, more adaptable forces. Um, and that's exactly what we're seeing in The Thing. We're seeing a rigid patriarchal framework of strong men. We're seeing fucking Kurt Russell and Keith David clashing horns while this thing is, is, is looping around them. It's running fucking circles around them and they fail to deal with that. Um, and, and that's, you know, and so it's kind of the failure of the masculine, the failure of the patriarchy in the face of adaptable, flexible, and thereby far more powerful femininity to assert itself. Um, that's, you know, that's why I, based on my reading of, um, of the Black Paper, identify this as a gender accelerationist film avant la lettre. <laughs> and, and, thank you. Um, yes, I, I said something in French that warrants, um, Well, no, I mean the whole, the whole thing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 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 um, well, basically, um, like a lot of the people in the kind of accelerator sphere, um, Nixland is a tech person, she's a programmer, and uh, there's a very, I mean, we talked about in the hardware episode, we talked about in the stone tape, the idea of um, computing is a fundamentally feminine one. Um, like, the, you know, there's okay, a very, can you explain very, that a little? Can you explain mm. that? Well, because, you know, um, because computers were first formulated by, I mean, the, the, the technology that enabled it was, um, was, um, was, Babbage, but it was Ada Lovelace who was able That's to really. provide the the programming. She she formalized the concept of programming and these kind of adaptable systems that would deal with other problems. There's, I and mean, in its initial initial stages, computing was considered to be a form of secretarial work. Yeah, hence it, was, it was consigned to the feminine sphere. Yeah, because it was the typing pool. But <laughs> then again, like, but well, that's the thing. It's like it's because it's because that. Um, the kind of a CEO structure, the kind of corporate structure was fundamentally a patriarchal and male one, that it like necessarily deferred these complex problems to the feminine sphere. It's interesting, um, so if, I, if, I might, if I might make a point, it's interesting as well that still the notion of the, the coder, the programmer, like the dude, who, the, the, the cis man who's really into computers, is still considered in the sense to be a failed man. It's still considered to be a masculinity which has not become masculine. Mm. Which could, could, to an extent, perhaps explain why there is a tendency, hashtag not all coders, a tendency of, uh, among like tech bros to be ever so slightly defensive about their masculinity, one might say. For sure. Allow me to just take a puff of my cigar. But at the same time, um, there is, well, I mean, like... Um, just stating for the record, Nick Sland is a trans woman and also a programmer. And this is where she comes in with the, the thing that people have, um, have identified as 
they they believe problematic, uh, which is that um, she identifies. Well, she picked up on the fact that a lot of trans women tend to be coders, um, which it you know having. Being a trans woman, I don't think I've said that on the podcast yet, but I think it should be pretty obvious. But if we're doing like, the coming out thing, can I also mention I'm a gay man? <laughs> Sean is gay. I'm mm. a gay, and this I am a... an interdimensional transmorphic being. This is a queer podcast. We didn't mean to make it that way, but it ended up. But so, sorry, okay. do carry but on. But like, I mean, she. I mean, she kind of like. There are many, many multiple layers of irony and nuance encoded into Nick's land view, but like she does actually have in her Twitter bio that she is a trans supremacist because uh, she identifies um, the 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 proliferation of um, trans female coders, which I can attest to because I've met because like even though trans women aren't disproportionately represented in coding, programmers are disproportionately represented in the population of trans women. Along with um, wearing chokers and knee socks, <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I mean, she what she um, kind of extrapolates from this is this idea that um, the trans feminine is sort of I'm not going to say ubermensch because that, that I think that would be doing an injustice. I, I, I think um, basically she she identifies trans women as the the entity on earth who is most fundamentally um, aligned with the powers of techno capital. Uh, which, even though from our own kind of, like, we have various, various kind of problems with what techno-capital is doing in the world, it does seem to be the way things are going. But but basically, yeah, so I this is a very, very roundabout way of saying, like, computers and the thing seem to be on the same side. If we're, if we're returning to the film... Because like that's a, well, yeah, because yeah, like I was just thinking about that. So the first scene you see Mac versus the com- the, the the femininely identified uh, computer chess program. Voiced by John Carpenter's uh, ex-wife, by the way. Is it Oof. fantastic? I mean, um, I mean, ooh, not oof. I don't know if she was ex at the time. Yeah, and the only other so the only other scene that sort of directly involves computers is the hilarious. Um, uh, what, how? What's the time okay. scale? The 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 twenty seven thousand hours or something. Yeah, yeah. I was talking, yeah the scene no. where uh, the 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 scientist Blair Blair um, puts the numbers into the computer and it immediately extrapolates the death of all mankind. And so these two scenes show the 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 power of computer uh, thinking over human sort of deduction, and and the the sort of. Um, the second one, the second computer is not like explicitly identified as female, but you could sort but of infer that from. We've kind of already <laughs> had uh, a kind of establishing female presence to computers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then to to, to relate that to the thing itself, um, they're both kind of non-human thinking entities, mm. uh, which are outside of our sort of understanding, but. I don't know, yeah, what would you say uh, is the sort of connection there? I think the connection there is the fact that, um, that, like, you know, they get the information from computers, and in fact, Blair, he separate, in the progress, in the progression of the film, he separates himself off from the rest of the team. He is separated off. Yeah, but... I should be said he is forcibly separated off. But, well, that's the thing, like, he, his reaction, okay, so, in fact, a bit of an aside, um... Our buddy Richard, who we're also going to have on the podcast, um, pointed out to me the fact that, like, 
one of the things that I raised in a blog post I wrote um, in a not entirely coherent state about the thing when I saw it, when the last time I saw it back in 2017, was the fact that it seems fucking hilarious that they have a computer program that is able to project um, exactly how this alien entity they've never encountered before is going to infect the populace. But Richard pointed out that um, that no, this could be this could be a program he just wrote in his spare time very quickly to extrapolate a problem, and that the language used, which seems a little too convenient for describing the thing, might actually have been his own. Mm. But that aside, um, you know, he he essentially recognizes a failure in himself and a failure in a bit his ability to do it because. Um, he sees the data, he sees the computer, he sees the computer model of the cells taking over the organism, and his first reaction is he's just re- he opens a drawer and pulls out a gun. Yeah, and it's yes, like, exactly. It's like either so, kill everyone else or kill myself. And that, that, no mirrors, that mirrors the first scene of just chucking the whiskey in the in the hard drive yeah. or whatever. Like, here's the solution. Like, Oh, fuck it. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to fucking... Bl- you know, it's like... I'm going to bloke my way out of this if it fucking kills exactly. well, that's the thing it's like um there's that wonderful line from the brilliant webcomic Aquid of like um yeah the chess pieces are all on the board but you're playing whack-a-mole <laughs> <laughs> which i think comes to the fore in that scene in but that, this like, is the yeah, whole i mean this yeah. is what we see like, like you already said this is what happens is i think it's important to emphasize that mac mccready came ross's character is checkmated Kurt, what's the, who did Ken I say? Russell is the director. Noted director Ken Russell, who was, who was not in this film. <laughs> Kurt Russell, I'm very, I'm quite drunk. I do apologise. Kurt Russell is beaten at chess by the computer. That's the point. And Ben is kind of almost like it's a, it's Alexander cutting the Gordian knot. He just finds his own solution, which is kind of like pours- pointless, destructive, and boyish. No, almost but specifically. He pours whiskey <laughs> onto the motherboard and short circuits the thing. It's like because whiskey is like his it's mas- so his patriarchy, his patriarchal <laughs> masculine response, which is I'm going to sabotage this with my fucking man cave. <laughs> like <laughs> no, 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 no. If I may, with his man juice, mm. indeed. Okay, I know. <laughs> So I think I may have said or said in my notes that like there are only two female figures in the film, which are the computers and the thing. But I think it's worth pointing out two things about the production of the thing. One, because I'm going to get to the other thing, is that um, McCready in in the original story, in the John Joseph Campbell um, story, he's like another scientist, but they couldn't have... Kurt Russell as a scientist, as a fucking nerd, <laughs> because he's such a badass, and you know he's fucking he's Snake Plissken. Yeah. Um. So so they I like, thought no, he was dead. No, he's the pilot. So he's the he's the crew pilot. Uh. So he's you know because they he had to be badass. But the other thing is the fact that like no, there is a third female character in the film, thematic character, which they cut out of a scene. But there is an inflatable sex doll. <laughs> Um, which oh man, which oh, yes. you see like him pick up briefly. It's just just the the, the image. I did not that. know this until you told me the other okay, night, and I was but, like, wow, yeah. But basically, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, there was that like there was a tech expo thing. I think it was in Zurich or something, uh, where they exhibited a sex doll, and then like the atten- the invigilators just left it unattended for like a couple of hours, and they came back. A <laughs> description of what they found was broken and badly soiled because it is 
<laughs> horrifically like abused by a bunch of tech CEOs uh, just behind a curtain during a conference. Hashtag not all tech CEOs. <laughs> no, no. Hashtag all tech CEOs. <laughs> but yeah, oh my I, just, God. I, just, I just my mind just filled with fucking. I just, I just, just, image, just... images of Keith David and Kurt Russell brutally spit roasting. Just... <laughs> Oh my god, I am gonna assert my vision that they're all queer if for no other reason basically the Antarctic uh, Antarctic version of prison gay at this point. Um, mm. that, that is, I, just, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of a line from a Charlie Brooker. This is just something I really specifically remember from an awful... <laughs> podcast awful, so bad. <laughs> reminds me of an awful show he was a part of called um, 10 O'Clock Live, back before, back in oh. the dark... The dark days before I knew you, Lucy. That's, that's some fun moments. That's some fun moments. The, fun, the only moment of which I remember is when they did a whole little funny bit where they are talking about um it, it was a fleshlight but it was specifically like the butt fleshlight you could get and there's just a bit where charlie brooker says have you i'm sorry have you ever met a man look at this thing there's a bum in a cab you'll have sex with anything uh thing there it is extraterrestrial protein um violational monster thing we'll have sex with and other men I mean, sometimes, this is, this is, as this well as sex dolls, and occasionally women. This is coming back to our thing, it's like, <laughs> would they all have survived if they just, like, if their first reaction had been, fuck the thing, <laughs> and then resign <laughs> themselves just to, Just show like, it love, Like, you know? because, you know, they are, they are men, and in the coming trans supremacy, <laughs> trans feminine supremacy, they will just be, like, biological matter to be shuffled off. <laughs> and so it's like, they should just accept their place and fuck the thing. <laughs> donate their genetic material to mm. its continued existence <gasps> and invite the helicopter that comes for them and say, look, here's, here's, our, here's not, our mate. Yeah. Please take it to New York. Can you not so recognise your god world. when it is yeah. looking you in the face? Look into the face of god. <laughs> I'm going to say the conclusion of this podcast. I no longer believe in the existence of god as a result of what if we've this, discussed. If this Sean's <laughs> conversion podcast... <laughs> He's been he's been Anglo-Catholic very hard up till now. <sighs> Until um, the prospect of fucking an interdimensional transmorphic <laughs> being came into effect, and then well, it's all out the window. Okay, um, we had some other stuff to talk about. about I think the, I think the, the, like, I think we're subtle, done. I think we're done. The subtleties and nuances of um, of John Carpenter's filming. <laughs> and, and, you know, the music and, is by. Um, more, well, no, that's an interesting thing actually, because like. Oh, do tell, please do. Okay, because like John. Uh, John Carpenter approached the uh, legendary director Ennio Morricone, who directed the soundtrack to Once Upon a Time in the West, which um, was then sampled by our favourite band in the fucking world, Fields of the Nephilim, the Harmonica Man theme. He did that, that was him. Oh, holy shit, really? Yeah, no, he's the fucking... Yeah, no, that was him. That's oh my him. god! We're doing Once Upon a Time in the West at some point in this podcast. Are we? Yes, no, that's a plan. Oh. Um, and so that's happening. But basically, he, he directed this, but like, John Carpenter was like... Um, was very, very cagey about what he wanted Ennio Morricone to do. And then Ennio Morricone was like, okay, well, I guess this this John Carpenter guy has been doing some music. I guess I'll just, like, try and sound like him. So we've got John Carpenter's requested Ennio Morricone score trying to sound like John Carpenter. Oh, my God. And then... It's, and a, then... it's a sublimation. It's a... It's a, it's a feedback he... loop. <laughs> no, but, he, yeah, he's doing the thing. He's, he's imitating. Almost yeah. perfectly. Oh man! Um, by the way, I just like I just, 
Chris is in a black metal band called Patient and they're very good. I yes, and we're playing tomorrow night. Uh, but that will we're be, gonna release be irrelevant yeah, to a long time. <laughs> this, will, this will have happened by the time I'm, I'm, you guys are going to come back and play in London you can crash in my flat all of you of course um, but but yeah basically also uh, John Carpenter heard this and they're like right I need to rewrite some bits so some of the main key scenes are actually just John Carpenter's original composition but influenced by Ennio Morricone that doesn't surprise me enormously really because I think like John Carpenter like the scores he did I don't sure if he ever did a full score he might have done but like the key bits of music that John Carpenter did for all of his films are extremely memorable for a reason and the reason is that he's very good at them so it's not an enormous surprise that uh, to me that um, the reason why that's, that music is as, as evocative as it is is because it's a kind of a weird fusion between Morricone and Carpenter, perhaps with an emphasis on Carpenter. Right. Can I just bring up, like, as a final point, the bass is called Ice Station Fool, right? Fool or Thule, yes. Or Thule. Thule in Dutch. I prefer Thule because it sounds more menacing, but... Also, there's a massive fucking rainstorm hitting the windows now. But, okay, so Ice Station Thule, meaning north, is in Antarctica. Make of that what you will. Um, I think... think, um, Wait, so Chris... Can we close this up I'm going to say... We're going to say in unison, keep it weird, and you're going to say... And stay signal. Okay. <laughs> so on on zero, three, two, one. Keep, keep it, it weird. And stay signal. The discourse is fucking real. We love you, and I'm sorry, God. <laughs> Everything is out of the thought. Good night.